Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Charles Lawton's 1955 film, The Night of the hunter. It's about two young children, John and Pearl, who are pursued by a dangerous man on the hunt for the money their father stole and gave to them. This is a classic film and a masterpiece and really one of the most terrifying films that I've ever watched. I provide some information about the making of the film and then I give you my in-depth analysis where I explore how this film looks at evil, male violence, religion, and much more. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadandfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films. Or you can also follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. I'd like to tell you about one of my favorite streaming websites that I've been loving for a while now. It's called Ovid. That's O-V-I-D. And it features some of my favorite art house and independent films. The site is a partnership between several art house distributors, including Icarus Films, Grasshopper Film, and Women Make Movies. There are a wide variety of films in Ovid's catalog, from French thrillers to documentaries about history and the arts. Now, more than ever, we need films that help us understand the world around us, and I think that's something that Ovid provides. The site is home to films by Madeline Anderson, an important filmmaker who documented the civil rights movement. Beginning in September, you'll be able to see many films by the black gay rights activist Marlon Riggs. I've personally been wanting to see Riggs's work for a while now. Also, I've been returning to the films of Andrei Tarkovsky recently, and Ovid has a fascinating documentary on their website about him that's by Chris Marker. It's called One Day in the Life of Andrei Arsenovich. Ovid has all these films and hundreds more. I really think those of you who listen to and enjoy this podcast would love this streaming site. You can use the code CINEMA to get your first month for free. Go to ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D TV, to start watching. In the show notes of this episode, I also have a link to a curated selection of my favorite films on the website. So now I'm going to talk all about Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter. some films that I revisit and they absolutely just knock me out. 
the film is everything that I remember and more. I first saw The Night of the Hunter in 2012. I wish I could remember how exactly I came across it. I want to say that I probably saw it on Turner Classic Movies, which is a channel here in the United States that plays classic films without commercial interruption 24-7. I want to say I probably came across it that way. That would be the most likely scenario. So it's been eight years since I saw this film. I may have watched it in between then and now in 2020, but I can't quite remember. So I really was revisiting it for the first time in years, and it was everything that I expected. It was everything that I remembered. And if anything, it was even more impressive and more intense because... I'm much different than I was in 2012. I had just started to become a cinephile around 2011 when I was in my early 20s. I've learned more. I've watched more films. I have more knowledge. And I see some of what Charles Lawton was doing. And I recognize the German expressionism and the influences from silent cinema because I myself have matured and watched more things. This film is extraordinary and terrifying, and chilling, and you cannot get it out of your mind or your system after you watch it. I just finished it before recording this. It's an accomplishment, and I think it is a masterpiece. As I do with every episode, I just want to give a little bit of background information about the film, and then I'll get into my full analysis and give you my thoughts and feelings about it. But I just wanted to say off the bat that this film impressed me and amazed me and it was everything that I hoped that it would be and that I remembered it being. This is one of those films where certain images have stayed with me over the years. That doesn't happen all the time. I watch a lot of films. I don't watch as many now as I used to just because I don't have a lot of time between working and just everything going on in my life right now. But I I have watched a lot of films in the course of my life. Most of them I just forget and I don't think about again. With The Night of the Hunter, there are images that have stayed with me. Mostly the Shelley Winters in the lake and her hair rippling. That one will probably always stay with me and I'll talk more about that scene later on in my film analysis. So this is one of those films that the imagery of it, it's so pure in its cinematic beauty because you remember those images and they stay with you. They are unforgettable and just extraordinary. The vision that Charles Lawton had, what he was able to create. This was Charles Lawton's first and only film. Up to this point, he was an actor and that's what he was known for. One of his most famous roles was in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. When he first got the script for The Night of the Hunter, he wanted to play the preacher, but there was no way that the film was going to receive funding based on that. The producer of the film, Paul Gregory, is crucial in the making of this film because he is the one that wanted Charles Lawton to direct it. He saw that potential in him. Paul Gregory is also the person who read the novel that the film is based on and he saw the cinematic potential of it. Charles Lawton had done some directing in theater so he had a bit of experience but he had just never directed a film. From what I learned Charles Lawton really relished 
the experience of making this film. Overall, everybody that was involved in the making of the film talked fondly about it. I watched some documentaries that saw, that showed Shelley Winters and Robert Mitchum talking about the film, and they said at the time that they were making it that they had the feeling they were involved in a classic. So it sounds like everybody knew the magic that they had, even though that didn't necessarily translate in the box office. But Charles Lawton relished the experience. According to Simon Callow, who has written a biography about Charles Lawton, he was very creatively fulfilled by making the film. Unfortunately, he died seven years after it came out. Even though he was primarily known as an actor at that time, since then, Simon Callow said that a lot of his films have been lost and that nowadays he he's known more for being the director of The Night of the Hunter, whereas when he was alive, he was more well known as an actor. His big influence for this film was the work of D.W. Griffith. He watched all of Griffith's films in preparation for making the film. I know that D.W. Griffith is a controversial figure in film circles, and rightfully so, for directing the extremely racist film, The Birth of a Nation. But I do have to mention him, because he is an important part of the genesis of this film, and his work is an important influence on it. His legacy must be acknowledged. He did inspire and influence Charles Lawton and many other directors that came after him. When it comes to how we talk about artists who held reprehensible views, I don't think I have a satisfactory answer to this issue or one that's going to satisfy everybody who's listening to this episode. This is not the space to go too deep into this. This isn't really the time, but D.W. Griffith was an influential figure in the history of cinema who left behind a legacy that has impacted a lot of directors and has helped shape films, classic films, films that we consider great. I feel that when it comes to this issue, what do we do with the art of reprehensible artists? of people who held views that are odious and diametrically opposed to what we believe. What is the answer to that? For me, personally, I would rather us grapple with the issue and talk about it, grapple with the history instead of erasing, censoring, or removing it. We cannot erase D.W. Griffith from the history of cinema. We can't erase his films and the impact that they had on other directors. I don't think that anything is gained by erasing or deleting those films and never showing them again. I would rather we talk about the issues. I think we can say that D.W. Griffith did a terrible thing in directing Birth of a Nation. We can talk about what came from that film, the rise of the KKK, right? And there were actually a lot of protests when that film came out. I recommend the documentary, The Birth of a Movement. So I think we must acknowledge that, but I think we can also recognize his place in film history and that he did have an effect on other films, other filmmakers, and I'd rather us talk about it than erase it and pretend like he never existed or his art never existed. We have to grapple with it. We have to talk about it. I'm somebody who believes in that. 
and I would rather us do that. But I have to mention him. I know he's controversial. I know there's no easy way to talk about these issues. I'm not someone who is particularly adept at talking about these things. I'm not that smart or intelligent about these issues. There are people much... people much more eloquent and smarter than me who have much more uh, well-formed ideas, but those are my thoughts on it. We wouldn't have the Night of the Hunter as we have it if Charles Lawton had not watched the films of D.W. Griffith. He was a pivotal part in the film in Charles Lawton's process of how he wanted to make the film, what he wanted it to look like. And even his choice of Lillian Gish plays into this because I'm sure he thought of her because she was in D.W. Griffith's films. It's an important part of The Night of the Hunter and it has to be acknowledged. He was also influenced more generally by silent cinema and German expressionism as well you can see in the film. The Night of the Hunter was originally a novel written by a man named Davis Grubb. He was from West Virginia and that's where the the book is set, the story is set. It was a southern gothic tale at a time when southern gothic was just coming on the scene through the works of William Faulkner and also Flannery O'Connor. O'Connor had just started publishing her work, I think, in around 1953. So this was a new type of genre, I would say. It was in its infancy. James Agee was chosen to write the screenplay. He was a well-known writer. He also wrote film reviews as well. I've always wanted to read his book of film reviews. I haven't, but I know of Agee. I've, I've heard of him and I've heard that he was a film critic. And I think like ages ago, I, I, I added his, uh, his book on film to like my reading list. And I always felt like, oh, I need to, I need to read that because he was there in those early days when cinema was starting to be formed and become an art form and I'm sure his thoughts about it and views about it are really interesting. He'd also previously written a screenplay for the African Queen. Agee's screenplay came out to around 300 pages which is a lot because usually I think in Hollywood they say for every one page of a script that's usually one minute of a film and you can't do a 300 minute film right? I mean some people do but it's not the norm. So Charles Lawton ended up really editing down that script. A.G. injected some things into the film that were not in the original novel. For instance, he came up with that scene where we see Harry Powell, the preacher, at that burlesque show, and he opens his uh, pocket knife inside his jacket pocket, and you see the blade cut through the fabric. That's a really famous scene in the film. And it's there because of A.G. Stanley Cortez was brought in for the cinematography on the film. And he's a very crucial part of this film and the look of it with the lighting, the um, the shadows that are in the film, the expressionism that's in the film. He was considered a master cinematographer. I would put him up there probably with Jack Cardiff. I think what he did on this film was extraordinary. He had previously worked with Orson Welles on The Magnificent Ambersons. He later worked with Samuel Fuller on The Naked Kiss and Shock Corridor as well. I 
remember seeing The Naked Kiss uh, many years ago, and that is a very good film. Stanley Cortez said that Lawton didn't understand the technical aspects as much, and so he mainly handled that. I think Charles Lawton really had the vision, and then Stanley Cortez had that practical knowledge of what lens to use and how to light it, and I really feel like the cinematographers back then were such artists. They knew about light. They knew how to do these scenes, and it's really extraordinary. I've learned a lot about cinematographers this year. When I did my episodes about Terrence Malick's films, I really gained a new appreciation for what cinematographers do, and I also have fallen deeply, deeply in love with Jack Cardiff, and I watched this documentary about him called Cameraman and learned so much about the art of cinematography. I saw this film called Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. Jack Cardiff was the cinematographer on that film, and it filled me with such wonder and love that I wanted to know more about Cardiff. And he also worked with Powell and Pressburger. I'm going on a tangent a bit, but I'm just trying to say that sometimes I think some people don't realize how important cinematographers can be to a film. And I think The Night of the Hunter is a really good example where the cinematographer makes such a difference in understanding lighting, understanding shadows, understanding all of these things that helps Charles Lawton bring his vision into being. When it comes to the cast, the the cast for this film is fascinating. Up to this point, before The Night of the Hunter was made, Robert Mitchum, who plays Harry Powell, the villain in this film, had really been a hero in a lot of film noirs. So this was a very different role for him. He was perfectly suited for it, I think. And he, I think he did a really excellent job in the role. Shelley Winters, from what I read and watched, had been a student of Charles Lawton's. And so he thought of her for the role. And that's how she got it. And of course, Lillian Gish right? Like, she is one of the most important parts of this film, and it sounds like her connection with D.W. Griffith was a big reason why Walton wanted her in the film. She had this really illustrious silent film career. Interestingly enough, this film was not shot on location. It was shot in a studio. I don't think you would assume that at all. Think of the river scenes. Think of all the outdoor scenes. Now that I think about it, this is a film very much set outside, outdoors. It's not an interior domestic type film. It's outside. It's on the river and in the front yard and all of these places or in the barn. It's a very outdoors type film with the sky, you know, the starry sky above the characters, but it was all done in a studio. And it just shows you the magic back then that they were able to create. It reminds me of Black Narcissus. That was a film also that Jack Cardiff worked on with Powell and Pressburger. That film is stunning, visually out of this world. And it's supposed to be set in the Himalayas, and it's not. It's done completely in a studio with painted backdrops that look like the mountains of the Himalayas and you would never know it if you weren't told that. It just amazes me when I learn these things sometimes and I think The Night of the Hunter, it looks like a, it totally looks like a film shot on location. The Night of the Hunter failed miserably at the box office when it was released but over the years 
It has come to be considered a masterpiece, and I certainly consider it one. Charles Lawton, as I said, never directed another film and died seven years after it came out. So that's just a little bit of background information. I'm sure those of you listening who might be diehard fans of this film, you probably already knew all of that. But I like to talk about these things because I think it brings depth to my film analysis and to my discussion of the film. I think it's good to lay all of this out and to talk about it. It was it was fascinating to learn more about the film. When I watched it years ago, I didn't do any kind of in-depth research. And all of this came basically from the Criterion Collection DVD of the film. There were various documentaries and there's an essay about it on the Criterion Collection website. So that's where I got my information. But when I watched it years ago, I didn't do any kind of deep research about it. I didn't know much about it. And I just assumed that Charles Lawton had probably made more films. And I was completely shocked that this was his only film. What a statement it was. What a legacy he left behind with this film. So now I'm going to give you my thoughts and feelings about The Night of the Hunter. fascinating people who only make one film or just a few films but usually like one I've I've covered a few directors like that on this podcast one of them would be Barbara Loden and her 1970 film Wanda another would be Kathleen Collins and her film Losing Ground that was her only feature film I think she has a shorter film there are directors who only make one film And you always wonder what else they would have created, what else they would have put out into the world. You feel a sense of loss. You feel a sense of what else was in this person? What else could they have shared? And I think I would put Charles Lawton in that category now. What else would he have made? What else would he have done if he had been given that opportunity? Maybe if the Night of Hunter had been more successful, he seemed really to enjoy it enjoy being a director and making this film and now I'll always wonder that but what's interesting is how some people who make only one film it's a masterpiece there are people who have made 10 films and there's not a masterpiece in the bunch and then some of these people make only one film and it's one of the greatest I think Wanda is a masterpiece by Barbara Loden and I certainly think The Night of the Hunter is a masterpiece and it is admired the world over. So many people love it. So we'll always wonder what else Charles Lawton might have created. But I'm really glad that we have this film. Revisiting it for this episode, I've said this before, I'm a broken record. I pick films based on feelings and memories and images and scenes that might haunt me and that I feel like I have something to talk about. But I do take a risk sometimes if it's been years since I've seen a film and then I rewatch it, I'm just hoping that I still like it and that I have something to say about it. I feel like 
these days I've really been going off memory with films. I don't watch as many films as I used to, although I have watched over a hundred films so far in 2020. Um, so I guess that is a lot. I don't know what else other cinephiles are doing, <laughs> how many films they're watching in a year. But I, I don't know, lately I've been picking a lot of films that I saw like a decade ago almost or something. I think it's because they're just lodged so deeply in my memory and there's something in them. There's an image, there's a scene, there's a subject that I feel compelled to talk about that I feel obsessed with. I chose this film to pair with another film. That's what I do each month right now at this time in 2020. I choose two films a month usually based on a similar theme, and I talk about them. I paired The Night of the Hunter with another film called Landscape in the Mist by the Greek director Theo Angelopoulos. I paired these two films together, and if you want to see them as a double feature, you could. I chose them because both of them are about children and specifically about children going on journeys. In Landscape in the Mist, the children are going from their home in Greece to Germany to try to find their father who they've never known and never met. It's a journey from innocence to experience. It's a journey that is a loss of innocence. It's a journey in which they see both the best and the worst that humanity has to offer. And I see similar themes with The Night of the Hunter. Those were the things that I wanted to explore about this film going into it. Of course, once I watched it, I saw other things that I want to explore and other things that stood out to me. But I think fundamentally there is a journey in this film, The Night of the Hunter, that these children go on down the river. Although I think in some ways, Landscape in the Mist, the children are going on a journey to something. Whereas I feel like with The Night of the Hunter, the children are going on a journey away from from something. They are moving from a state of peril and danger with Preacher, with Harry Powell, and they eventually find safety and love and they find a home with Miss Cooper, right? But in between, there's more peril and there's more danger. They are running away from Preacher. They are running away from this force of evil that is pursuing them. Their journey takes them to Miss Cooper and takes them to some kind of home, some kind of sense of belonging, a place of love and support. And in that way, I see this as a film that has hope in it and has beauty in it because these children, though I do think they lose their innocence, they are not completely lost. They do find something at the end of their journey. And it's a beautiful thing. It's this woman who loves them and takes care of them. I think that's a gorgeous thing about this film. I'm rambling a little bit. I'm going to get into my film analysis, but I just want to get to the basics about the cast. Directed by Charles Lawton, cinematography by Stanley Cortez, released in 1955. Our cast is Robert Mitchum as Harry Powell, who I'll refer in this ep episode as Preacher. We have Shelley Winters as Willa Harper. Billy Chapin is John. Sally Jane Bruce is Pearl. Lillian Gish is Rachel Cooper, who I'll refer to as Miss Cooper in this episode because that's what she's called in the film pretty much. The film is set in West Virginia and now that I think about it this might be one of the only films I've ever watched set in West Virginia as far as I am aware and it just kind of hit me <laughs> as I was 
as I'm looking through all this, it's not a place where it seems like a lot of films are set. So this, this is probably my first episode really about a film set in West Virginia. So that's interesting to note. So I want to talk about the beginning of the film and then I'm going to break it into different parts. I want to talk about Preacher. I want to talk about Willa Harper. I want to talk about Miss Cooper. I want to talk about the children's journey. I want to talk about religion and all kinds of different things as I'm going through this episode with you. But I want to set up the film first because the the beginning of it is really important. We see the starry sky with the heads of these children superimposed on it and we see Lily and Gish as well. Interesting to note, one of the sources that I um, read or watched when I was learning about this film, said that those were not real stars. As we know, the film was set in a studio, was shot in a studio. He said it was tinsel or something like that. Those are not real stars at all. They look pretty real to me. It looks pretty realistic at times. So we see the heads of these children floating in the night sky and Lillian Gish is reading from the Bible and this is really a foreshadowing of what's to come. She says, quote, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, unquote. And then we see these little boys who are playing outside and they find the body of a woman. We only see her legs and the high heels that she's wearing, but we know that she's dead. And I noticed in this opening scene, Charles Lawton has these very interesting scenes and they will recur throughout the film. And I think it's very fascinating. He has these shots where he's floating over a town and you get this bird's eye view or this God's eye view of that town, of the landscape. And then, um, you know, you'll see lakes and houses and all of that. You get this large panoramic view and then he'll zero in on one particular place or person. He does that, I think, before we see the woman, the dead woman, and then he goes back out and then we see two children playing outside and that's John and Pearl. I just think that's fascinating. I think it fits well with the how religious the film is and how important a part religion plays in the film. Simon Callow in his interview about Charles Lawton said that that was important to Lawton to show the hypocrisy of religion, the sexual repression and other types of repression that come with religion. And I think he does a really good job and I'll probably weave in my talking about religion throughout the this episode. It's something that I struggle with. I've always lived pretty much in the South in the United States and it's a heavily religious area. I grew up in a small town in North Carolina and I still live in the South even though I don't live in North Carolina anymore. And it's just, this is known as a conservative area, as a very religious, evangelical even type area. And growing up, I was not religious really. Obviously when I was a child, I probably prayed and I think I did go to church a little bit, but I never really believed it. I never really bought into it. I never could surrender to it. Um, or believe in religion. I've always had a love-hate relationship with the South. It's my home. 
it's where I was born and bred and raised. There are beautiful aspects about it. I feel very connected to the landscape, meadows and trees and forests and the grass and the clouds and all of these things. Like I feel very deeply connected to the landscape. I've had more trouble with the people. I've had more trouble with religion, with conservatism. And I think it's something that Lawton does a really good job of showing in the film, of showing the hypocrisy of religion at times, the repression of course, the damaging effects of it, but also showing how it can be used for good things too. Because Miss Cooper's religious, right? Religion is, I wonder if that, you know, that God's eye view that we get is connected to the religious subject matter of the film, where at times it feels like the camera is a God or is in some kind of omniscient position, looking down on all these lives and then zeroing in on certain lives. It's just something I thought about. But we're introduced to the children, John and Pearl, and they're playing outside. And it's a very dramatic scene where their father appears and he's bleeding. He has the $10,000 and this money is the root of everything in this film. You know, money is the root of all evil greed. And it all begins with this money that he stole that he robbed a bank for and ended up murdering two people in the process. The father appears, he's looking for somewhere to hide that money. He ends up, as we know, hiding it in the doll, in Pearl's doll. And he also tells John to guard this money with his life so that he can have it when he is older. The police arrive and they arrest him. It's a very traumatic scene for John to see his father arrested like this. It's brutal, it's violent, and it's the first experience, I think, for John of seeing something so terrifying, seeing this man that he loves treated this way. And then, of course, he's taken away. The father is taken away forever and he'll never see his father again. Ben Harper is his father. Ben Harper is given the death penalty because he killed two men while he was robbing that bank. Before he's executed, he shares this jail cell with Harry Powell, played by Robert Mitchum, who I'll call Preacher. And Preacher wants to find out where that money is hidden. He becomes obsessed with that money. He actually stole a car, and he's put in jail for 30 days, and that's why Harry Powell is is in jail. The thing is, is that Ben Harper stole that money for good reasons. He wanted to provide for his children. He didn't want his children to go hungry or to want for anything. That's why he wanted them to hide it and have it and be able to use it one day. But really his robbing of that bank, it becomes this sin that taints everything else. After Ben is executed, the children are taunted by other kids. People judge them. People judge Willa, their mother. They are tainted by his crime. And it's like they take on his sins. So he did it for a good reason in his own mind, even though he ended up killing some, you know, killing two people. He wanted that money to give them a better life. But instead, it is the root of all of the pain and suffering and death that comes into their life. The money doesn't help them. The money doesn't do anything for them. All it does is create more suffering and lead to so much violence and death and loss. So it's kind of sad, like this father 
he meant to do something good in his own mind. And what he really does is unleash his family's destruction with that one act of violence and murder that he commits. And he brings the preacher into their lives. If he had not robbed that bank, he would have never ended up in that jail cell and he would have never met the preacher. Everything comes from that one action by the father. The father's executed and preacher gets released and he is on his way to find Ben's family. So I want to talk about Harry Powell, the preacher, what he represents and things like that. This is, without a doubt, one of the most terrifying films I've ever watched in my life. I think a lot of people will agree with me. There's no blood in it. There's no gore. There's no explicit or graphic violence, but it is a terrifying film. It is a chilling, disturbing, unsettling film. And I think a lot of that is because of Robert Mitchum's performance and the character that he plays of the preacher. For me in this film, the preacher represents absolute evil in my mind. He is something evil and unstoppable, relentless. It is the rapacious force of evil that he represents. He cannot be stopped. He's like this train or something that just plows over everything and there's no way to stop him. Everywhere they go, he is there. They cannot escape him. And in that way, he just represents this unstoppable, rapacious evil in my mind. And when I was rewatching the film, it just crystallized even more for me that that is who this character is. It's interesting to watch this film during the pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic that we're living through. I can't believe it's August already. I'm recording this in August 2020. And this thing really started in March, like seriously started in March. And I didn't know if I'd make it to the fall. I didn't know what the world would look like in the fall. And what I have seen unfold in the last few months is something that I do not have language for and something that I am still processing and trying to understand is what has happened in the United States. Why our response to this pandemic has been so appalling and so egregious and so chaotic and incompetent and negligent and really almost criminal. I th did I say this in another episode? Maybe I did. But just like we had a commission after the September 11th terrorist attacks, I believe that when we get to a place where this is over, I guess, I can't conceive of that, but it must happen, there should be a COVID-19 commission just as we had a 9-11 commission in which we investigate how this happened how we got to over 150,000 people being dead and the numbers are increasing. We're really, as I record, at 155,000 over that point. And I remember in March when people put out numbers like this, put out over 100,000 as numbers, I was shaken. I remember crying. I remember thinking, no, no, this can't happen. And it has happened. So the unthinkable has happened. It has happened partially because of who is in this White House, right, with Donald Trump. This pandemic has exposed something about the American society, the American soul that I'm still coming to terms with. To see people so 
uncaring about one another's lives, to see people believe conspiracy theories, to see people be so anti-science, anti-intellectual, to see the cruelty at times that I've witnessed, to see prophets being put over people and just everything has just been horrific on every level. Like what I see in Donald Trump, I, I see a kind of just I almost see like a Harry Powell type character in him and in a lot of people in the government right now with what's going on of just selfishness, self-centeredness, buffoonery, only caring about yourself and what you want. There's an evil about it to me. Like there's something about this government right now that we're living under that is like profoundly evil to me. And feels that way. So what I see in Mitchum's character in this preacher is the rottenness of the American soul. That's what I see right now. It doesn't mean that everything about us is bad. It's nuanced. It's complex. There's good people in this country. There are people fighting. There are people um, doing important work in this country, right? But the people in power right now are just so irredeemably terrible. (laughs) Like, I just can't even wrap my head around it. And I'm not just talking about the right. I'm talking about the Democrats, too. Like, the Democratic National Committee just recently rejected adding health care for all to their platform in the middle of a pandemic where poor people and minorities who have less access to health care are dying at disproportionate rates. If that's not cruel, if that's not evil, if that's not inhumane, then I don't know what is. If anything should show you that we need universal health care, it would be a pandemic in which people are dying. So I'm saying this is this is widespread. But what I see in Mitchum's character in The Preacher is the fraud, the greed. Gosh, I mean, you think about the billionaires and millionaires who have profited off this pandemic, the selfishness, the violence in this country. I see Trump and the many many men who run this country and run the rest of us into the ground. I see them in the preacher. In the preacher, I see male violence and the violation of a woman, the destruction of a woman in Shelley Winters as Willa Harper. In the preacher, I see religion used as a ploy to manipulate others. And I love that in the end, it is a woman who defeats him and vanquishes him because he hates women. He absolutely hates women. And so this evil that I see in the preacher, it's a multifarious evil. It's like an evil that I see in the government right now. It's an evil that I see like in male violence and violence against women. It's an evil that I see sometimes in religion when it is distorted and used to commit violence. So there's a lot of things that I see in, in his character. And so it, it the film had even more resonance for me as I was watching it. And I just wanted to say that. I mean, it might seem like a tangent to talk about the pandemic, but I'm always thinking about it. And I talk about it on these episodes as like a way to document it, a way to document what is happening. Because I know people will listen to these episodes well into the future. I mean, I have episodes that are like three and four years old. So things change, life changes, but I just want like, sometimes I want these episodes to be like a capsule of what's happening in the world and in my life. So to me, the preacher is just 
He represents a rapacious evil, a rapacious force that is really relentless and merciless, and you cannot stop it. What package does evil come in? I remember that sheep's clothing comment from the very beginning. Evil can come in any form and it can hide itself well. The town that the preacher ends up going to where Willa Harper is with her children, it's average and it's even idyllic. It seems safe, but evil can come from anywhere and invade any place. Sometimes it can secretly creep in. It can look like you or me, the way that Robert Mitchum does. He's also terrifying because the preacher is evil, but no one can see it, really except for the children and later on Miss Cooper. He fools everybody. He's in that sheep's clothing. He uses religion as well to shield himself and to come off as a godly and good person. And that allows him to manipulate other people and to weasel his way into their lives. Preacher is really a serial killer. When we first see him, he's driving in a car that he has stolen and he's talking to God and he mentions uh, six or maybe 12 widows that he's killed. This is... A pattern of his to prey on women and to steal their money and then murder them and he's on the hunt for another um he is the hunter in this film and the thing is is that there are men who are really like that there are men who have dated women and taken them for all they have I watch a lot of true crime. I read a lot of true crime. There's all kinds of stories like that where women are taken advantage of and some of them are even murdered. These men exist. And the fact that he, you know, talks to God and says that he's a preacher, like the way that he uses religion in this film to manipulate other people. But I don't know if if he does it in a cynical way or if he really believes it. Throughout the film, he does talk to God. He thinks God has preordained all of this stuff. He thinks that God wants him to have that money because he put him in that cell with Ben Harbour. Like, he seems to genuinely believe these things. It is a performance. It is an act, I think. And he uses it to manipulate people. But on some level, he genuinely believes this stuff. He genuinely believes that God is on his side. That makes it disturbing as well, I think, is that here's someone who believes he's doing the Lord's work, right? And he hates women. That's very clear. And we see that in the scene, the burlesque scene, where he's sitting there watching this woman dance and he's just filled with disgust. He absolutely hates women. It's also during the scene where we see his knuckles for the first time and we see the word hate spelled out on them. And that's a very famous scene from this film is his knuckles having the word hate on them. That's also when we see him flick open his pocket knife in his pocket and the blade cuts through the fabric. And one of the things I watched, they said that was supposed to be sexually suggestive. The blade coming through the fabric. And they also said that Charles Lawton chose Robert Mitchum for his sex appeal. That he wanted Robert Mitchum to be sexy and attractive. He wanted that in the film and that was very important to him. And I think Robert Mitchum absolutely has that about him. He has that... uh, that sex appeal. He has a very masculine presence 
a very like virile, attractive, sexy presence in the film, which also I think unsettles you as a viewer that he's attractive, he's alluring, he's seductive, and yet he is so dangerous and terrifying. And of course, that's how he lures people in, is with that appeal and with that attractiveness. Everything about him is manipulative. He uses everything to get people in his web. And Shelley Winters talked about this in an interview where she understood Willa Harper. She understood her as someone who was infatuated with this very dangerous thing, with this spider or something like that. And she gets caught in that web. And I think Mitchum's sex appeal is part of that too. She gets caught up in him and attracted to him. And she doesn't realize the evil that is right in front of her. The evil is obscured by the good looks and the religious talk and all of that. And that's how he lures those women in. Everything about Preacher is terrifying. When he first appears to the children, he appears um, as a shadow. The, the way shadow and light is in this film is stunning. But he appears as a shadow. John is telling a bedtime story to Pearl. And all of a sudden, there's the Preacher's uh, shadow of his hat. And it's terrifying to see that. To see the shadow all of a sudden on the wall. He's out by the street lamp singing that song. Leaning, leaning, you know, and then he he sings his song. And that recurs throughout the film. They don't know how dangerous he is when they first see him. And it's only gradually revealed. And he weasels his way into their lives. And he lies to them. He goes to, to Icy Spoon's restaurant. He says he works at the jail where Ben Harper was killed. He doesn't say that he was an inmate there. So he's lying and manipulative, manipulative from the first moment. And of course, they are naive. They live in this little small town. They don't think to question his story and they trust him immediately. And they're also taken in by his religious talk. They believe that because he goes to church and he's religious, then he must be good. They don't think about just because you go to church, just because you're religious, doesn't mean you can't be a bad person. In their minds, he must be good. And he shows them his hands, the one with hate, the one with love. And he talks about how they're always battling hate and love. They're always warring, but he says that love always wins. And Willa, Willa works at the restaurant with Icy Spoon, the older woman, and Icy Spoon's husband. And they're all just, you know, so impressed by this. What's interesting is that love does win in this film. You think that hate and darkness and evil are going to win because it's so indomitable, it seems like, and so eternal. There's no way it can be vanquished. That's the way you feel at times, that he cannot be stopped. But love does win. Miss Cooper wins in the end. So that actually does happen in the film. And Willa feels this pressure to remarry. The preacher becomes the man that she puts all of her hopes and dreams into. He comes into her life at the perfect time and he takes advantage of that. He takes advantage of her vulnerability as a widow. She's judged by the townspeople, so are the children. And she knows that she has to move on. 
she's also worried that people judge her and think that she knows where the money is that she has put it away somewhere of course she doesn't know where the money is but she thinks that preacher knows where the money is he tells her that the money was thrown in the lake and after she hears this she feels clean and she feels like this burden has been lifted so preacher gradually becomes part of their lives everybody's impressed with him but the children can see right through him they see him for what he is and john says you ain't my dad you'll never be my dad he will never accept the preacher now pearl feels differently she loves the preacher she wants another father she wants his love and affection and she takes to the preacher pretty quickly it occurs to me in this moment as i'm talking about the film that a lot of this film is about women longing for love from men and it hit me just right now and it's something that i've been thinking about a lot lately in my own life pearl wants love from the preacher she wants love from a father figure. In many ways, she wants another father. Willa Harper, who I'll talk about in a little bit, she wants love as well. She wants the love of the preacher. She wants him to take care of her, value her. She wants to make herself into the kind of woman that he wants to be with. And she craves his love and attention and affection. And she's lost the love of Ben, her husband. And so she wants that from another man. Later on, near the end of the film with the character of Ruby, who lives at Miss Cooper's house, she has a crush on the preacher and she ends up telling him that the children are staying with Miss Cooper and there's this scene where she wants to be told that she's beautiful and she says something like have you ever seen such beautiful eyes what is it I can't remember the exact quote I apologize but she is so desperate for that attention and that love and she's been going to the drugstore for a while now meeting with boys and wanting their love and their attention and she wants the same thing with Preacher, who she has a crush on and she finds really handsome. And he uses that to his advantage. And it made me think about, even in this day and age, women and girls are still so, I don't want to say obsessed, but we are still very wrapped up in how men see us and if men are attracted to us. And one of the most important things you can ever say to a girl or a woman, even now, is you are beautiful. We want to hear that we crave hearing that I know that I do I've been thinking about it lately of and I know this is not related to the film but I like to bring in my own thoughts and experiences and things I struggle with sometimes and I guess because I've been thinking about it recently it really jumped out at me that the film it may not have meant to I'm not saying that this was intentional on the part of the filmmakers or on AG I'm not saying this was something they were trying to explore they were trying to show but women are socialized to desire male attention and to define our worth by how much we get and to even compete with other women and girls to get it and there is nothing quite like being told you're beautiful and when you go through life not being told that you're beautiful I think that's what moved me about Ruby is that her desperation for it her craving for it her hunger for it and I could identify 
identify that within myself of that absolute need for male attention and to be seen and to be found beautiful. But I've never had that in my life because I'm not considered beautiful. I'm not considered attractive based on society standards. And that's something I've talked about multiple times on this podcast. Like I'm not revealing some deep dark secret here. I have an episode about the enchanted cottage where I talk a bit about this and about living, you know, when you're seen as ugly, when you're not seen as an attractive woman. And it can do its own damage. And it can also make you very vulnerable. And I really want to say that like, I hate this need in myself. I absolutely feel like it gives power to men and it makes me mad and uncomfortable. I never want to base my worth off what somebody thinks of what I look like, but it's impossible to not care about it when, as a woman, your treatment in the world, the way you're seen, and all of that is so determined by what you look like. There are advantages that come with being beautiful. There are things that come with it, and in the way that you're treated by men, and the way that you just navigate the world, it has its good, it has its bad, but it's hard when you are in a society obsessed with beauty. And I think it's even worse now because of Instagram and social media. Like when I go through my own Instagram, all I see is beautiful, gorgeous women, right? Like, and I feel so inadequate. I feel it just part of it just makes me sad that that's still the the most important thing that you can tell a woman is that she's beautiful. And it doesn't matter if someone tells you you're smart, doesn't matter if someone tells you you're interesting or you're funny. There's still something intoxicating about being seen as beautiful or someone seeing you that way and getting attention from men. I just want to be real about it. I want to be honest and I want to be raw about it because I know that I have a lot of women listeners who could maybe relate to this. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. It defines us and it can damage us. That pursuit of beauty, that pain you feel when you don't live up to those standards. And I think what I see in these women in this film is is that aching in them and that craving to be loved by a man. And I understand that. I understand that deep, deep ache to be seen as beautiful, to be seen as worthy, to be loved, to be adored to be valued. And for women, so much of the time, the only way we have any value or worth is if we are seen as beautiful by men. And even now, even after decades of feminism, this is still the reality for a lot of women and girls. And I feel it myself. I've lived with it. I don't know, just as I was talking just now, it hit me like a ton of bricks that Ruby and Pearl and Willa, they want attention from men. They want love from men. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that necessarily. We're human beings. We want love. We want affection. But unfortunately, what they are attracted to or who they are attracted to is a dangerous, ugly, evil man. And they don't even know it but they want his love. They want his attention and uh, they crave it. And he's able to use it against them. He's able to pretend to give them that love that they crave, to give Ruby that ice cream sundae and look at her in a way that makes her feel drunk or intoxicated, right? She gives up 
the secret that John and Pearl are living with Miss Cooper. He knows how to push those buttons on those women, Ruby and Willa in particular, and make them feel a certain way. He knows that he can take advantage of that. And even with Pearl, he gives affection and love to Pearl. He puts her on his lap. He makes her feel like he's her new father and he's going to love her. She doesn't necessarily give up anything when that happens but she feels a connection to him and she does love him as a father and he knows how to manipulate people he knows how to manipulate women and play into those weaknesses and those vulnerabilities and those cravings and the those desires once he has willa he starts to break her down he shames her he withholds his love he withholds sex from her he withholds a lot of things from her So men give you that attention that you crave and then they can just as easily rip it away from you and then you feel used and you feel discarded and you feel rejected and I hate letting anybody have that kind of power over me and it makes me very uncomfortable personally and it's just something in my life that for a very long time I myself have struggled with of yearning for that attention and wanting it, not getting it, which makes me want it even more, right? And so I I can identify it in these women and I can understand their perspective and I can understand how they are attracted and seduced by it and by him. And I know I went on a little while about this, but it has really been part of my life lately and something that I have been thinking about a lot. And I just wanted to share my thoughts about it, but these women want something and he's able to give it to them and then get what he wants in the process and then once he has it he discards them once he has what he wants from willa he discards her or she becomes an obstacle to what he wants once he gets the information from ruby he discards her it is an important part of the film and i just wanted to touch on it for a moment Once Willa is murdered, and I'll talk about Willa separately in a moment, they are left with Preacher. And once the mother is removed, they have no protection from him anymore. There's no escape, but they know that they're going to have to run away. John hatches that plan where he tells Preacher that the money is hidden below a stone in the basement. But when he goes to the basement, it's made of cement. And when he threatens to kill John in that scene, that's when Pearl finally reveals that the money is hidden in the doll and that's when they run away from the preacher. There's that amazing scene where they're running up the stairs of the basement. You can see the preacher following them, running after them and he just misses them and they shut the door. They go to the river, they get their boat and there's preacher and this will be a recurring thing throughout the film once they're separated from him is that he is always there. It's like he is made of the night, made of the darkness, and he wanders in it and materializes out of it. And he is omnipresent. That's what it feels like. And it would, of course, feel like that to these children. You're really seeing the world through the eyes of these children. Everything is like a fairy tale. Everything is heightened. Everything is unfamiliar, in a weird way because when you're a child you're still not sure of the world you're still figuring things out and everything's 
it seems bigger than it is or seems scarier than it is because you don't understand it yet. And he's like the ultimate boogeyman in a way, probably to the, to these children. And he must seem like he's not even human because he is always there. He is always pursuing them, hunting them, going after them. Even when they're getting in the boat, he shows up. He's silhouetted against the sky and you can see him coming for them. That's the terror of this film. That's why it's terrifying. And I almost feel like maybe we all have in our lives something that that this man, the preacher, symbolizes for us. You know, something in our lives that's evil or scary or something that we went through or something that happened to us that he almost represents that idea or something. He, he represents like that horrible thing or that demon. Like we all have our demons. We all have things that we can't escape. And he almost represents that force or that idea of just this unstoppable thing that pursues us constantly and that we can't get ourselves out of the clutches of it, right? He keeps appearing no matter where they go. They can't get away from him. He always finds them and they get in that boat right in the nick of time and that scene where he goes in the water with his knife and is coming for them, but he can't catch them. And when they get in the boat and they get away from him, he he yells out in frustration. He just screams almost like a child because it's almost like, there, he's evil, he's horrible, but there's something infantile about him, like a buffoon or something like that. The way that he yells out because he doesn't get what he wants. He wants that money, he wants those kids, and he can't have it. And it's like a tantrum. Once that happens, the children are on the river and they're away from him. They're running away from him and their journey begins. But before I get into that journey and what happens to the children, I want to talk about Willa Harper specifically. Shelley Winters plays her. And it's interesting to note that when I was thinking about this film, I confused her a bit with a very similar character that she played in A Place in the Sun. I don't know why, but I get those two characters mixed up sometimes. I think Shelley Winters does a really excellent job in this film. Rewatching it for this episode, I felt like I had even more sympathy for her and I felt even more tenderness for her. I just noticed myself spending a lot of time thinking about her as I was watching the film and afterwards. She's in a very difficult situation. She's a widow with two children to raise. She's expected to get married again. She's told basically that she needs a man. She needs help raising the children. I felt sensitive towards her, sensitive to the predicament she's in, the pressure she feels to remarry, the judgment of the town on her because she's a widow and because her husband killed two people. As I said earlier, she and the children are stained by that sin. They are stigmatized by the sins of the father. And it's interesting how when she's being told by Icy Spoon that she needs to get married, in that scene we see a train coming through the dark and it feels like she's almost fated to meet Preacher. He hunts her down. He seeks her out. She's already in his web and doesn't even know it because he knows about her before she knows about him. He knows about her in that jail cell with Ben Harper. She's even more vulnerable to him because she needs a man according to all these people around her. 
he will plow into her life just like that, just like a train. And in a way, she's on this collision course with evil before he gets there. And there's such a vulnerability about Willa as a character. She's trying to do the best for her children. She has no idea of the depths of the evil in the preacher. She's very passive, shy, gentle. She is no match for him. She cannot see through him. She's not like Miss Cooper later on who has this grit and this toughness and for whatever reason she's just able to see through the preacher in a way that Willa doesn't. Willa trusts him. She's just trusting. She takes him at face value and believes that he's good and believes that he means well. I think she wants to see the good in people. She can't even conceive of the evil in front of her. And I have to bring up my true crime interest because I have it and I'm obsessed with true crime. I talk about it periodically on these episodes. I watch a lot of shows, watch a lot of documentaries and TV series, and I mainly watch not out of some kind of perverted interest. I'm not sitting here wearing a Ted Bundy t-shirt, okay? What I'm interested in are the stories of the victims, usually the stories of the women who are murdered by men, murdered by men that they go on dates with, by men that they marry, men that they love and they trust. That's why I watch, because I'm interested in those women's lives. I'm interested in what happened to them. I'm interested in how their murders were solved. And as a woman, I share that vulnerability and I share that fear of what could happen to me in the world and what a man could do to me. It's something that I think a lot of women feel. They may not admit it. They may not, you know, go to true crime to deal with it, but it is a part of, why I watch it. And it's a big part of why a lot of women engage with true crime is because of that shared vulnerability that many of us feel. When I was watching Willa in this film and saw what happened to her, made me think of the stories that haunt me. Women who have husbands, for instance, who are not necessarily abusive, physically abusive. They show no signs of violence, but who end up murdering these women. These women did not see it coming. They had no idea what they were living with. We've heard all these stories of various women who were murdered by their husbands or their boyfriends and they had no idea that he was even capable of that. They loved him. They married him. They spent years with him and then he did that to them. It's unimaginable. So I think about how women watch and listen to true crime because they're trying to see those signs and those red flags. I think some women do. They study these women who were killed wanting to know what they missed so that they don't miss it themselves. I think it gives a false sense of comfort or hope that they think that they'll be better equipped than those other women who got murdered. And the truth is, is there really is no way to know. There's no way to predict it or forecast it. But to me, Willa represented women who are murdered by men that they trust and that they genuinely love. And they have no idea that anybody could do that to them and could hurt them in that way. She sees another side of the preacher pretty early, right after they get married, when it's the wedding night. And of course, you would expect to have sex on that night. But preacher lets her know in no uncertain terms that that's not going to happen. He hates sex. 
he hates women. He resents them. He certainly doesn't want to be intimate with them or with her, at least. He claims that marriage is about the blending of spirits. Apparently, sex with her would be too low for him. It would be like a debasement. And he wants to shame Willa for her sexual desire. He wants to control her. He has her go over to a mirror and look at herself. He tells her that she has the body of a woman, the temple of creation and motherhood. He mentions Eve and her sin. He sees Willa as a woman whose sole role is to have children. She's not supposed to fulfill the lust of men, he says. She wants to be clean. She wants to be what preacher wants her to be. She wants to please him. Because of that, she allows herself to be consumed by this man, to let him make her into an image of what he wants. And what I saw in Willa was my own fear of that happening to me, of like, I am deeply afraid of changing myself for a man, of turning myself into something unrecognizable. I always fear that. And it's why I have trouble sometimes in interactions with men where I feel like I am diminishing myself or lessening myself or changing myself to make a man feel comfortable or at ease or, and it's not something you're always conscious of when you're doing it, but that's what I saw happening to Willa in the film where she wants to become this image of the woman that Preacher, you know, desires, or she lets, she almost becomes this clay or something that he sculpts into what he wants. And he uses religion to control and to manipulate her, to make her feel dirty, to make her feel, you know, like a bad person, like she's not clean enough and she's sinful. She even starts to be convinced that she's the one that pushed Ben to murder because she wanted too many material possessions. And I feel like he's probably put that into her head. She goes to this like, almost, it looks like some kind of revival or something, like where she's preaching or something. And there's other people there at some kind of event she talks about how she sinned and this scene was just heartbreaking it showed to me the damage of religion when it's used this way this idea that you're soiled and sinful for natural things like sexual desire you're made to feel dirty and filthy one day willa comes home and that's when she overhears preacher trying to find out where the money is she wants to believe that he didn't marry her for the money she wants to believe he was telling the truth when he said it was at the bottom of the lake as he did earlier but he's trying to get Pearl to tell him where that money is. She overhears him and she realizes that Ben never told Preacher where the money was and that it was a lie and this is when she's lying in bed. He slaps her. It's this powerful scene like we see her in bed and then we see the Preacher under the ceiling and the ceiling is like triangular. It almost looks like a cathedral or a church church. It's hard to describe this scene. I know those of you have seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. And it's a very good example of like the use of shadow, the use of lighting, the German expressionism that's in the film too. Like the thing about German expressionism that I've noticed, like with the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, is the angularity 
in that film like the the different angles and you kind of see that with the night of the hunter of like jagged like angular thing in the room of this the ceiling being triangular or something and you see it through throughout the film kind of of like just this angular type stuff i'm not putting it in to good language i apologize so she knows the money is still there and it's she says it's tainting them and she still doesn't want to believe that he married her for that she wants to believe that the preacher was brought into her life to save her soul and it's at this time that he brings out his knife and he holds it over her and this is the knife that we saw earlier that went through his pants pocket or his uh, coat pocket and he raises it over her and kills her murders her right in her bed and eventually goes and drives the vehicle her body in the vehicle into the lake and then tells icy spoon and other people that he thinks that willa ran off in the night he puts on this thick performance saying he'll raise the children and he's worried about her for me it was just another reminder of the way that he used religion as a shield he always knows the right things to say to lull people into believing he's this good christian man when underneath he's a serial killer religion is a prop for him a performance like the tattoos on his knuckles and he's always good at that he uses it to turn people against willa to make people think that she's just run away and of course with the sexism and the misogyny people believe it they absolutely believe she would just run away and abandon her children and then we come to one of my favorite scenes probably ever like in any film that I've ever watched and that's when we see Willa at the bottom of the lake her dead body at the bottom of the lake her hair rippling in the wind that's underneath the water and it's rippling in the same way that these large weeds or is it seaweed or something down there is also rippling it is a haunting scene that I will never forget yet it has haunted me ever since I saw it every time I see the scene or I see images from the scene I get chills I I wish I knew properly how to talk about this scene but um this is visionary to me how does the mind even come up with a scene like this to put a body under the water like this and have her hair rippling in that way how how do you even come up with this scene and then there's this delicate music that's playing and it's the horror of this woman's murder and her body in the water willa doesn't even look like herself shelly winters looks almost unrecognizable in the scene because her body would have been bloated and things like that and i couldn't help but think of other women murdered by men their bodies dumped in lakes and rivers women destroyed dismembered obliterated like willa was as a woman i know i could be willa that's what i feel when i watch things like this i could be that woman thrown in a ditch annihilated and discarded by a man i feel the fear of that any time that i engage with men i think a lot of women have had their own horror stories their own very scary encounters i know what could be done to me i often wonder how i can be attracted to men at all or want them at all when their violence is so horrible and so unspeakable they commit the vast vast majority of violent crime on this planet there's this part of me that's like why am i even attracted to men when many of them 
don't even see me as human, just as Preacher did not see Willa as human. He saw her as inferior, beneath him, so insignificant he could kill her with his own bare hands and hide her body like she was nothing. This scene, it's weird because it's beautiful despite its horror. Willa looks serene. She looks like she's at peace. Maybe that's what makes it so haunting. It's like, how do you even talk about this scene? I don't even know. I I feel like I can't do it justice. He takes us into that underwater world and not a lot of films do that. Not a lot of films go into the water and show a body in water. And even though she's dead, there's this movement of her hair. I wish I had the words to describe it. She's been destroyed and that's what you see. You see this destroyed woman at the bottom of the lake. You just see the violence that was done against her and yet there's something so peaceful about her down there. It's almost like, you know, when you see the the images when they found the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean, it's like so serene and you can't imagine all the people that died on that boat. She looks so peaceful and serene, but she died so violently and so horrifically. I feel like I'm not getting at it, but it moved me. It really, really moved me. And the thing about this, this scene is that this would never happen in real life. This film is not about realism. It has a fairy tale quality. It has a an unreal, surreal type quality at times. I don't know if I go to film for the replication of reality, though I do want some measure of authenticity. I think I go to it for an amplification, an intensification, an expansion of reality. Cinema does not need to be a perfect mirror handing life back to us exactly as it is. Instead, I think film provides images and sequences that go beyond the everyday and take us into a heightened world. The images in this film do that. Shelley Winters at the bottom of the lake is, for me, the most haunting image. That's not how anyone looks after they've drowned in real life, but it's an image that says something, that has a point of view, and is made by somebody with a vision of the world that I think is worth seeing and exploring. And Charles Lawton did that. Like he put so much into this film, created these singular images that you won't see again. They'll just sear themselves on your brain. I know that's a cliche phrase, but it just, you'll never forget it. You'll never forget these images. Talking about Willa was really important to me because I just think she's such an important part of the film. Just recently, like a day or two ago, I decided that I was going to read my copy of the collected poems of Sylvia Plath. Throughout this pandemic, I've had a lot of trouble reading. (laughs) It has been a struggle for me to read. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've had a lot of trouble focusing, concentrating, and making sense out of language. The world does not make sense. And when the world doesn't make sense, it's hard for me to do much of anything. I decided that I wanted to try harder to read again because I feel more myself when I'm reading. I have a literature background. I studied English literature when I was in college and that's what I have a degree in and so books and literature have always been a huge part of my life and it's an equal passion I would say as cinema. I mean cinema consumes me more and has really taken over my life in the last few years mainly because of this podcast. 
I put a lot of time and energy and all that into this podcast. Um, It's become my hobby, I guess you could say at this point. But I miss reading. You know, I miss poetry. I miss books. And I just decided I was going to go back to one of my first loves, and that's Sylvia Plath. And she's always been so central to my life. I read Ariel when I was around 16 years old. That's the time that I discovered Sylvia Plath. It was also around the same time that I discovered Virginia Woolf and got interested in her work as well. Yes, I was that 16-year-old girl reading Sylvia Plath. That seems to be the age when a lot of people discover her. So I opened up my collected poems and I started reading it. The first poem in my copy is called Pursuit. And I felt that it perfectly described Willa Harper and described what was happening to her when it came to the preacher and the way that he pursued her and hunted her. I'm not saying that the the poem perfectly describes the relationship or anything like that, but I think the poem has a similar mood and atmosphere and dark imagery that I think describes the preacher a bit and describes Willa as well. And so I just wanted to to read it I think that it pairs well with the film I think it's a gripping and fascinating poem and so I wanted to read it because I want to if I can inject more poetry into the podcast I will do that I like to read poems so it's called Pursuit There is a panther stalks me down. One day I'll have my death of him. His greed has set the woods aflame. He prowls more lordly than the sun. Most soft, most suavely glides that step, advancing always at my back. From gaunt hemlock, rooks croak havoc. The hunt is on and sprung the trap. Flayed by thorns, I trek the rocks, haggard through the hot white noon. A long red network of his veins. What fires run? What craving wakes? Insatiate, he ransacks the land, condemned by our ancestral fault, crying, Blood, let blood be spilt. Meat must glut his mouth's raw wound. Keen the rending teeth and sweet the singeing fury of his fur. His kisses parch, each pause a briar. Doom consummates that appetite. In the wake of this fierce cat, kindled like torches for his joy, charred and ravened women lie, become his starving body's bait. Now hills hatch menace, spawning shade, midnight cloaks the sultry grove. The black marauder, hauled by love on fluent haunches, keeps my speed. Behind snarled thickets of my eyes lurks the lithe one. In dreams ambush, bright those claws that mar the flesh, and hungry, hungry, those taut thighs. His ardor snares me, lights the trees, and I run flaring in my skin. What lull, what cool can lap me in when burns and brands that yellow gaze? I hurl my heart to halt his pace. To quench his thirst, I squander blood. He eats, and still his need seeks food, compels a total sacrifice. His voice waylays me, spells a trance. The gutted forest falls to ash. Appalled by secret want, I rush from such assault of radiance. Entering the tower of my fears, I shut my doors on that dark guilt. I bolt the door, each door I bolt. Blood quickens, gonging in my ears. The panther's tread is on the stairs, coming up and up the stairs.
What I feel in this poem is the pursuit that she talks about, that rapacious, unstoppable pursuit, and the black marauder reminded me a bit of the preacher, and then that last part about going up up the stairs, I thought of when the preacher was going after the children in the basement and going up those stairs. So there was just imagery that I thought and just a mood and a feeling to that poem. And I feel like it captured something about Willa, the way she was hunted and pursued by the preacher. So now I want to talk about the children's journey a bit. And then I'll talk about Rachel Cooper, Miss Cooper. And then that will be the end of my discussion. Once the children are finally in the boat and they're away from the preacher. Now that I think about it, it's interesting the way water functions in this film. We see Willa Harper in the water, her hair rippling underneath the surface. Water is also what takes the children away from the preacher. Water protects the children. It becomes a vehicle for their escape away from him. And I would say that this scene on the river, it is very dreamy. It's very dreamlike and very beautiful at times. The children are in the boat. They're floating down the river. The water glitters under the stars. There's this part where Pearl starts to sing and it's like they're in this dream. They are completely alone now. This is also, I think, the most vulnerable part of the film for the children. They're on their journey down the river. It's a journey of survival with an unclear destination. They have lost everything. Their father, their mother, their home, their safety. They are orphans. It's so interesting to see how nature is represented in the film during these scenes. We see a spider web. We see a toad on the banks. We see these rabbits on the banks and they look very large. Again, we're seeing the world through children's eyes, the way that these children would have seen it. I mean, I just think when I was a kid looking at the stars in the sky and like everything looked bigger, everything was more menacing and scary, but also full of possibilities. Everything felt like an adventure. Everything felt more exciting. Like you just felt that, right? We almost see these animals observing John and Pearl in the boat in a way, um, observing their river journey. The children just look so small and vulnerable against the huge night sky, against the, the river. They just seem so small. Because this is a film about children, I think a lot about the kids who are coming of age right now, facing this pandemic, facing a chaotic, dysfunctional society here in the United States. And I think the world must seem very scary to them at times. I think that a film like this really taps into the sense we had as children of the world being very vast and uncertain, but also, as I said, full of those possibilities. Pearl and John on their journey, they're going to see the bad and the good, and they're not going to be unscathed by the end of it. I think they do go from like an innocence to an experience, or there is a loss of innocence in this film for sure, but I think there's a light in the dark, and I do think that there's hope at the end of their journey, like with Miss Cooper. I really believe that. During this river journey, the preacher is still pursuing them, and in one very famous scene, they stop one night, and they go on the land. They want to sleep on the land, and they come to this house where this woman's singing, and they dock the boat. They go to her barn, and they get a little bit of sleep. Then they hear that sinister voice of the preacher singing in the distance, singing, leaning, 
Leaning. We see John in the barn in the foreground. And then in the background in the darkness, we see the preacher on his horse and he is silhouetted against the night sky. Just as he was silhouetted when he tried to attack them as they were getting on the the boat but they slipped away and in actuality that was not Robert Mitchum on a horse that was a little person on a donkey and that's how they created that scene so he is still pursuing them and it, and at that point John says don't he never sleep in the eyes of these children he must just seem superhuman like he doesn't sleep he doesn't eat he doesn't stop all he does is live to terrorize and go after these children he's just unstoppable they go from the barn and they go back on their river journey and as i said there's just something beautiful about this journey even though it's perilous even though it's scary and they don't know where they're going to end up at and they're all alone the animals on the banks the stars above them the sound of the water it's just so magical in a way and dreamy and like I don't it's hard to even describe it's just so beautiful even though it's perilous and scary eventually their boat stops on a bank near a field and this is when we finally meet Lillian Gish's character Rachel Cooper who I call Miss Cooper and if the preacher is the hunter Miss Cooper is the savior she is the light that vanquishes the darkness she's the good that overcomes the evil the love that overcomes the hatred and I think that's an important message right I think we always need hope we always need messages of hope that good will overcome evil that love will overcome hate and I think I have to remind myself of this in the midst of this pandemic in the midst of a political landscape a political moment that is so terrifying to me where I don't have faith in my government I I don't feel like this country is doing well and it's not I guess I have to have some kind of hope that good will prevail that things will get better somehow I don't know but I do feel hopeless a lot of the time I do feel the sense of despair I have felt it a lot in 2020 and I have had to try very hard to overcome that sense of hopelessness so a film like this does help me It helps me hold on to some of that hope, even though I feel like it's just dead. I think the children find her for a reason. At first, she's very hard on them. She's kind of harsh. She's like, she wants them to listen to her and obey her. And she tells them to go to her house. Like, she's she's not exactly, like, really nice. She's like, hey, listen to me. Do as I say. She automatically becomes an authority figure and somebody. And she takes control. She knows what needs to be done, that she needs to take care of these kids. These are random children floating down a river and she needs to take care of them. She feels a sense of responsibility for them almost immediately. Whereas I think other people didn't care about these kids. You know, when Willa goes missing, they just believe the preacher that, oh, she ran away. None of them offer to take the children in. None of them feel any responsibility for these children. She doesn't even know them and she wants to take them in and help them. Over at Mrs. Cooper's house, there are already several girls, including a girl named Ruby, who plays an important part in the film because she ends up meeting the preacher and telling him that John and Pearl are there and that Pearl still has her doll with the $10,000 in it. Of course, Ruby doesn't know there's money in the doll, but it's clear that Miss Cooper takes care of children. She 
she takes in orphans. And she asks John and Pearl, where are you from? Where are your folks? And when she asked them that, it really hit me that these two kids don't have any folks. They don't have family or parents. And that really brought me to tears that these children have nobody. They have nobody. And it makes me think of all the children around the world who are like that. You know, children in some countries where they're on the streets. But even here in the U.S. with the pandemic, I've heard about young people losing both their parents to COVID-19. It may not be a a common story, but it is happening. I just heard about it on the news today, a young man that lost both his parents. There are children as we speak right now in our country becoming orphans. Who will take responsibility for them? Who will take care of them? Who will love them? Parents are irreplaceable. Ben and Willa Harper, those were their parents. They'll never have any more and they're completely irreplaceable. And I just felt that sense of them being orphans and being so alone in the world. But Miss Cooper finds them and she is the one that gives them love and she really cares about children. You know, there's this scene where she's talking about women and calling them fools because they fall for men and then she ends up having to take in the children that sometimes result from those relationships. She is taking in unwanted children or children who would otherwise not really be cared for the way that they should. She says at one point, I'm a strong tree with branches for many birds. I'm good for something in this old world and I know it too. I love that. She does have a son, but he doesn't contact her anymore. So she seems to be estranged from her son for some reason. I love that the woman in this film who's the most powerful and the one that has the most meaning and goodness and who really contributes something to the world is an older woman. And society so often discards older women or elderly women. Once a woman is past a certain age and she can no longer be sexualized or defined by men wanting her and desiring her, she's seen as worthless. She often becomes invisible. I don't think Hollywood knows what to do with women like this, with women past a certain age. I guess maybe past like 50. But I love these women. I love watching films about older women. They're often widows or they just live alone because they're not interested in romance anymore. A lot of women nowadays who are older, I read an article about this a while back, they're not wanting to get married or not just not wanting to get married. They're not wanting to move in with men. Like say a woman turns 60 or 65 and she becomes a widow for whatever reason. And then she starts dating older men, you know, men her age and going going back into the dating world, they said a lot of women at that age don't want to move in with a man because they don't want to have to take on taking care of him, doing house chores. They prefer to just live alone or live separately and just sort of meet him you know, whenever. And that makes sense to me. They've given much of their lives to men and to their children. And now they're in a period of their life where they can live more for themselves. So more older women are are comfortable. They're becoming comfortable with living alone. They don't want to be a maid or a caretaker for a man anymore. They want time for themselves. Now, Miss Cooper dedicates her life to children, to taking them in and feeding, clothing, nurturing them. She knows they're the 
next generation and these are the most vulnerable children. They're the unwanted and the orphaned. She gives them love and support and she gains a sense of purpose and meaning from from that. She's not living for herself necessarily but because she isn't married and she doesn't have any obligations to a man or any responsibilities you know to taking care of a man or even taking care of her own kids. She has time and the resources to take care of all these children. So I love that the children find her. I love that they find a home and a place of love and support that they so desperately need. And if you think about it, this could also be a way to look at alternative family structures. Like even though John and Pearl don't have a mother and father, they have Rachel. They have Miss Cooper. They have the other kids that live at the house. And that becomes their new foundation. That becomes a new family structure, even though they don't have the mother and the father. Who's to say they couldn't also experience love and support from this setup with Miss Cooper and the other children there? So I like that as well. That just occurred to me that it's it's a different way to have a family, but it's still a place of love. It's still a place of nurturing. I really love that. I love that Miss Cooper's an older woman and she's not putting up with anybody's crap anymore. (laughs) She's doing what she wants to do and she's taking care of these kids and she is fierce in her protection of them. And she's not afraid of anybody. She's not afraid of the preacher. And there's that really touching scene when she talks about Moses and Moses floated down the river just the way that John and Pearl floated down the river. And after the other kids go to bed, John goes up to her and he's standing beside her. This is when he finally tells her that his parents are dead. They're talking and he touches her hand very gently. And it's just this tender moment of intimacy, connection, of touch. He doesn't have a mother to tuck him into bed anymore. He doesn't have a mother to read a bedtime story to him. He doesn't have his father anymore. All that's left is Pearl and now he has Miss Cooper. She is something for him to believe in and to hold on to. Somebody that he can love and be loved by in return. So eventually Ruby meets the preacher. He flirts with her and tells her she's pretty and that's all that Ruby wants. Ruby's like a teenage girl and she desperately wants male attention, male approval. She wants to be seen as beautiful and attractive. And that's a very natural thing that that you would want at that age. And she does. And he uses that against her. He weaponizes her desire for that to get information about John and Pearl that he that they're with Miss Cooper. Ruby feels terrible about what she's done. And she knows that she's done something bad. And she breaks down and tells Miss Cooper that she's been meeting men at the drugstore. She falls into her lap crying and Miss Cooper could easily have could easily get mad lash out but she understands what Ruby's feeling and she tells her we all need love Ruby I lost the love of my son I found it with you all you're gonna grow up to be a strong fine woman and I'm gonna see to it that you do gosh 
I just love Miss Cooper so much. <laughs> and then Preacher shows up at Miss Cooper's house. Now he tries to put on his usual performance of being a religious man, saying that he's the kid's father, that the mother's run off. But when Miss Cooper tells John to go to his father, John says he isn't his father and she knows. She can look at John and tell something isn't right. And she's one of the few people who do not fall for the preacher's performance. She knows he isn't as he isn't a preacher. And that's when John grabs the doll and then the preacher tries to pursue him and she gets her rifle out and chases him away. And then later that night, the preacher returns and Miss Cooper is guarding the children. She's sitting outside in her rocking chair holding her rifle. And as the preacher is singing his song, leaning, leaning, she starts to sing too, almost as a way to challenge him to drown out his singing with her singing because she's singing the same exact words the same exact song i have this book by marguerite dura that i recently read and it's the reason that i chose to talk about the night of the hunter because she had an essay in the book about the film and it reminded it reminded me of the film it got me thinking about it and I wanted to share some of her words about the night of the hunter in particular she writes about this scene where Miss Cooper is singing and taking on the preacher Quote, given that the old woman is classed with goodness and love in the American myth, she cannot kill, so she improvises. The old woman, therefore, contrives to sing in order to get through the hours during which the threat of death exists, this passing of the night, a propitious night for murder which slips away like the river. The old woman improvises by singing Moses. She contrives to sing the very song that the criminal was, whist was whistling, calling on God for his help. Outside the house and inside, between the criminal and the innocence of the children, the old woman contrives to raise this barrier of song. There's the miracle. As the song develops, the criminal goes through a transformation, a kind of grace. In turn, this grace being the commonplace of the old woman and children, overtakes him, welling up in him, wending through his wickedness, through his death. Let's say the way childhood runs through life, and suddenly his desire to kill appears naive in comparison with childhood, that immensity. Suddenly his crime appears to be the product of a whim, of an insatiable greed, of a child's willfulness. The old woman keeps on repeating her own song, which she sends back to him in the night through the intolerable evil he stands for. This song he now in turn begins to sing with the old woman, sending it back to her in turn. The old woman's song has opened up childhood, the sluice gates of the infinite. Childhood was hidden, masked by crime, but who would have thought it? It was still there too in the false father, as it is elsewhere, everywhere, whole, in the old woman, in the children alike, and see how they come together. The criminal is singing with the old woman. They are singing together loud and high like in church, together. Both of them know the song, the children likewise. I see that he doesn't know he's singing. He is singing. He hears singing and he joins in the song. You see people running and you join in the race. He's singing like before. 
Before what? Perhaps before the beginning of the world which the song relates. The old woman sings for him. First she sings to make him understand that she is there, to keep him at a distance, to tell him that she is there, vigilant, to guard the children. And then afterwards her singing goes beyond this, to make the crime move away from the children's space, so it will be distracted, forgetting to kill, and relieving the criminal for a moment of the weight of his insanity so that he will leave it alone for the time of a night. Then her singing goes even further than this. First, her song is offered as a challenge. Then it is shared by the father, and then again, yes, it becomes a song of joy, of celebration. The criminal and the old woman together sing of their return to life, the father's last celebration, and the children are immersed in this song till morning. They sing at the top of their lungs. You can hear the song from everywhere. No one sleeps around the singing. The father still doesn't know he's singing. He will never know. During the course of the night, the song becomes an insurmountable barrier for the crime. With the daybreak, when the singing stops, the contingency of the crime, like that of work, of misfortune, of blinding reality, will return. The end of the night of the hunter is indeed a celebration, while the criminal himself collaborates in his own deliverance from evil, from that evil which is there in him like anywhere else, in this man like anywhere else. The criminal doesn't know how to be delivered. It's the others around him, the children and the old woman who know. Criminal does not perceive his own life. Unquote. So for Dura, the singing is almost like a duet and Miss Cooper's singing is a way to like I said, drown out the singing of the preacher. She calls the preacher the father at times. There's a part in her essay where she, I think, compares him to a father. But what she's saying is that the singing is what prevents the crime because the preacher is supposed to come in there and murder them or murder the children, murder Miss Cooper, and he doesn't. They're singing to each other and the music is what prevents the crime. The singing is the barrier and she also sees the singing as a form of deliverance or a salvation, like a way that that the preacher is saved. She sees that The preacher singing along with Miss Cooper is a way for him to engage in some kind of salvation and to maybe resist his impulse to murder and destroy. That the singing is a form of salvation. He does go into the house, of course, but he's not able to hurt them or kill them because Miss Cooper shoots him and he runs to the barn. The singing is an interesting part of the end of the film and it seems to be the barrier. It seems to be what stops him from killing anybody else is that Miss Cooper is there. She's vigilant. She's guarding. She's protecting these children. She's keeping this evil force, this preacher at bay with her voice She's keeping him at bay with her rifle, obviously, but she's also using her voice to keep him away. The sound of her voice is to let him know she is awake. She is vigilant. She has that gun and she's not going to go to sleep. She's not going to let her guard down and let him come in and take those children, take that money and do whatever violence he had intended on doing. As long as she's singing, it means that she's awake and it means that she can protect the children and she can keep this evil man at bay. 
At one point, she says it's a hard world for little things. And she is the protector. She is like the guardian angel protecting these little things, protecting these little children. She believes in the resilience of children. She says to John at one point, you know, when you're little, you have more endurance than God is ever to grant you again. Children are man at his strongest. They abide. And the police arrive and they arrest the preacher. And it's the this very shocking scene because John responds to the arrest of the preacher in a way that you don't expect. The scene echoes the arrest of Ben Harper, John's father, at the beginning of the film. And as I said, that was a traumatic experience for John. And all of a sudden, it's almost like he has this flashback to that incident. And he runs over to the preacher as he's being arrested. And he starts calling him dad. And he throws the doll at him and wants to give him the money. All the money starts coming out of the doll. And at this point, John passes out and Miss Cooper has to carry him. And it's like... I don't know it's almost like he's back in that moment with his father or something it's almost like it it reminds him of that the sad thing is is that if the preacher had been a different type of person you know if he hadn't been a serial killer who killed a lot of women he actually could have been a father figure to john and pearl he could have taken care of him care of them they could have been a family but he was so evil so incapable of love so incapable of goodness that that would never happen that would never be a possibility for him later on when the preachers put on trial that's when it's revealed he had 25 wives and killed them all he was a serial killer they call him Bluebeard. he's convicted the crowd is just like full of rage against him because they were lied to and betrayed and they couldn't see through it they couldn't see that evil that was right in front of them and then at the end it's Christmas and the children are together and John gives Miss Cooper an apple because earlier he had had an apple and I think it was during the scene when he touched her hand he was holding an apple and so it's it's a very sweet gift that he gives her and you just have this sense that John and Pearl are going to be okay because they're with Miss Cooper and they're with the other kids there in the house and that they're going to make it to me this This is a film that affirms the value of children that reminds us how essential it is that we protect and nurture and love them. Lord save little children, Miss Cooper says. She gives love to the children, but they also give her so much love in return. It's mutual. There's a reciprocity between them. She's saving them, but they're also saving her. And I wonder what a world would look like that valued children and really protected them. So much of what happens to us and damages us takes place when we're very young and it can leave scars on us forever. There's high rates of poverty that children live in in this country. Schools are not funded the way that they should be. There's a lot of things. There's, you know, sexual abuse and things that happen to children. There's a lot that happens and that kids go through. There's a lot of suffering in this world. And I don't feel like the world cares about children and protects them and gives them what they need the way that it should. And children do get forgotten. They do fall through the cracks. They do get damaged and hurt. But they're also resilient. I I agree with Miss Cooper. Children can also be very resilient. But you know what? They're only resilient if they're in the right environment and they have 
the resources and the love that they need. That's what I think makes a child resilient. It's what makes them persevere is that they have that environment where they can flourish. And that's what John and Pearl have with Miss Cooper. And of children, Miss Cooper says, they abide and they endure. And they do, but only when they have what they need. And John and Pearl are very lucky that they find that because for so long they struggle and they're on that journey. They're on that river searching for a home, searching for a place to go and they can't find it until they meet Miss Cooper. Uh, This is the last thing I'll say. I think with this film with religion, I want this to be the last word. Religion can be oppressive. And it can be hypocritical. I think about the people I grew up with in that small town. And I think about things that they did to me, to my family, things that I saw. And then they would go to church every Sunday, right? Or I have relatives who didn't treat me too well. And they consider themselves Christian and religious and moral and good. There's these beliefs that people have. And then there's people's actions. And we are all flawed and complicated and messy but that doesn't give you the right to hurt people or to be mean to people so religion can be oppressive and hypocritical I think a lot of us have experienced that it it is that way there can be this perversion of religion that we see in the preacher but Miss Cooper is religious too but she's a different kind of religious she she doesn't use religion to justify her violence because she's not violent she's not using religion to justify anything anything. She's merciful. She's guided by a moral compass. So people can use religion for good or bad. And too often it is used for bad. It is used to hurt people. The film is filled with good people and bad people. It's filled with the light and the dark, with with love and hate. All of these things are always warring. I mean, I think I think the preacher is kind of right with that. That love and hate and good and evil and all of that, they're always kind of in conflict and warring with each other. But you like to think that the good will win out and you try to remember that it can win you know good can win love can win so the film leaves us I think with that hope I think we need that (laughs) it's a dark and terrifying film for so many reasons and then at the end it's also a very touching and hopeful film at the same time and John and Pearl have found a home they found a place where they belong they found a woman who loves them and cares about them and you know that they will abide and they will endure because of that it's an amazing film film. I hope you liked my discussion. I've gone on long enough. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Paulina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.